This is an SBC Media Partners production. Swung on, hit high and deep. Right field. Good 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 it is Phillies fans, these are your glove stories with Murph. Let's check out Greg Murphy. Murphy, you got a special guest, huh? Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Glove Stories with Murph. We're certainly glad to have you here with us. It's brought to you by the good folks at Bet Parks Sportsbook and Casino app, the Shy Vintage Sports, and Phillies Nation. And we thank them for their support. And we are really excited to hear some terrific glove stories today from a man who has thousands of them. Uh, he is the, was the longtime PR director and then the vice president of the Philadelphia Phillies uh, in uh, PR. And uh, Larry Shank is, uh, is a guy whose name you probably know, uh, maybe affectionately known as the Baron as well. You've heard that name, uh, Phillies fans, over the years. And Larry has been kind enough to join us here today. Uh, Larry, first of all, great to see you. And, uh, and uh, we're really excited to hear some of the stories because uh, you spend, what, five decades of Phillies baseball uh, in your role in the, in the public relations department for the Phillies, right? That is correct. It was uh, it was a great time. It was my dream to work for the Phillies. Um, I was in two World Series parades, and I was also at the bottom of the National League a few times. So it was <laughs> a long time, but it was a, it was a great, great, great run. Really was. Yeah, when you're when you're around that long, you're going to run the gamut of good and bad. But yeah, uh, yeah those two rings uh, certainly are are very special. I am sure. Um, let's go back though to to the beginning because you started your career as. A newspaper writer, right? I mean, I know it was it was short lived, but uh, yeah. but you started as as a scribe, as a and um, so tell me how that started and how you made the transition over to the Phils. Well, I graduated from college with a de- degree in elementary education from Millersville, but I didn't know if I wanted to teach, so I stopped at the Lebanon Daily News, which was my hometown newspaper, looking for a summer job. They said we don't have a summer job, but we have a an opening as a general reporter who would work on the sports department on Friday nights. So I thought I'll take that and start there. And uh, after two years of writing murders and funerals and weddings and United Air, Air United campaign meetings, I started looking around for a, a job in sports, doing more sports. And I was interviewed for the Wilmington News Journal and the Westchester Daily Local. The same day, I was 0 for 2. So I went back to Lebanon and a week later, the fellow they hired in Wilmington left. So Al Cartwright called me back and I started there in January 63, covering high school sports in the state of Delaware. And that that October, the Phillies PR job opened up for the third straight year. I had applied the first two years. I was 0 for 2 for that. <laughs> this time I was in the right place, the right time. Somebody knew me. I was offered a job and uh, I was a little concerned because I was the fourth person in four years. Was yeah. it the person or was it the organization? But I also realized this was my dream job. And if you don't take it, it may never come around again. And the rest is history, I guess. Yeah, it, it is remarkable because, yeah, the, the, the guys that had preceded you didn't last very long. And then you come in and last for, you know, 50 plus years. So uh, I guess they got the right guy finally in 1964, right? I guess they did. I was determined I was not going to fail. So the fellow who was there before me, um, he's no longer living, Charlie Beck. He was the sports editor in the West Daily Local. I was interviewed to take his job there and didn't get it. But I learned that he showed up in the fifth inning with the game notes. Hmm. So I thought if I get there in the third inning, I'm ahead of him. I'm ahead of him. So <laughs> uh, I started my uh, my notes. I called them newsy notes. And Stan Hockman of the Daily News said, Larry, these aren't very newsy. <laughs> <laughs> Got to step it up. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the great Stan Hockman. Well, you know, back then, uh, obviously the job of, of what you were doing, first of all, you probably wore about 12 different hats in the organization at that point. I mean, what, what was the biggest challenge as you kind of got underway in that position? Well, back then we basically lived with the newspapers. You know, there were five or six of them that covered the Phillies on a daily basis. Not all of them on the road. Three mm-hmm. or four went on the road. So you were you were kind of driven to the, working through the media with the the print media. Uh, TV stations didn't send crews out to games very much. All the games were on television at the time and radio. So you you had to work with your own broadcasters and the beat writers who you lived with you know, um, for 162 games. And uh, it's it's changed a great deal. Back then, if you made an announcement on the for an evening paper, which was a bulletin, 
then the inquiry wanted to know when are they going to get a chance to have a break a story. So you had to balance your stories, one for the AM, one for the PMs. And over time, that's gone. And nowadays, you hit the you hit a tweet button and the whole world knows. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Instant gratification nowadays. The world has certainly changed the way uh, sports are covered. But in, in, in the 60s and the 70s, you know, as you uh, started to build that department, um, you had some probably great relationships with some of the great writers that have come through Philadelphia. You already mentioned Stan Hockman. Um, who are some of the other guys that uh, that you connected with along, along the way? Bill Conlon was a great baseball writer. Um, not the easiest to get along with, but that's the life. Frank Dolson, Alan Lewis was my mentor. He took me under his wings. I love Sandy Grady, the columnist at the Bulletin. When I was at the Lebanon Daily News, my desk was right in front of the city editor. So, the, so I, I didn't want to sit there doing nothing because then he, he'd give me assignments. So I would retype Sandy Grady's columns to try to pick it up. Osmosis didn't work, though. <laughs> it didn't work. But he, he was fascinating. Uh, Philadelphia had some tremendous yeah. writers. Larry, Larry uh, Merchant. Larry Merchant was another one. Um, Ray Denninger later on came along. Ray Kelly was at the Bulletin for a long time. Um, Philadelphia was, you know, New York was always considered the num number one market. Well, Philadelphia is right there with them. No doubt about it. In terms of baseball coverage, I would agree with you. I mean, you just mentioned six or seven legendary writers uh, over over the course of uh, that early part, and and it continues to this day. You know, we we have such such talent in Philadelphia that's yeah. covering this team. Um, what so what was the biggest challenge for you as you kind of because media relations, public relations, you know, you're you're you've got this side where it's the players and the organization that you're protecting for lack of a better word, but then you had the other side of the writers who were trying to get the stories. And um, so how did, how was that balance for you? Well, it was a delicate balance because you are the middleman in there. You're kind of a referee at times. Uh, when I first started though, the writer, the writers did not go to the clubhouse after games. They did not looking for interviews. So you didn't have that aspect of the job. But the, initially the, the newspapers back then were reporting the game, what happened, but, Newspapers then realize, hey, the game's on television. So everybody has seen what happened. Why did that happen? You know, so they started going to the clubhouse toward the end of my year career, toward the end of the early years of my career. And then it became bigger. We get to Veterans Stadium where we had much better facilities and we had Connie Mack Stadium. And we had interview rooms set up after the game to bring the manager and the writers and the broadcasters in there. There was friction because the writers didn't want to ask a question that would go on at 11 o'clock news in 10 minutes. Yeah. They would not get in the paper the next day. So there was a little friction about who's going to get uh, treated first and so forth. We had a couple things where I had a referee because the uh, a cameraman would bump a writer in the back of the head and all hell would break loose. But it worked out now. It's 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 common things. But. We didn't have a thing called Zoom back then. No, <laughs> so we did so not. It was all live stuff. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting. It's it's funny the dynamic between the television and and the writers. I mean, that still exists to a, to an extent today. Um, the electronic media uh, can be you know immediate, and and the, obviously the print media a little bit delayed. But with the the advent of Twitter and and stuff like that, the writers um, kind of re grab that advantage. It's interesting to me. I did not know that uh, the writers did not go into the clubhouse after games. So so when that started, what was the reaction from the players? I mean, it was that a was that a big deal at the time? It wasn't because it, the the volume wasn't there. You know, you might have one TV cameraman there. You may not have any there for any, but the writers were there every every day. Mm -hmm. But during batting practice is when the writers would get their pregame notes, and then that would be the early edition of the newspapers. They'd go from there to the press box and get those uh, game game notes in the newspaper right away. Um, and I was I was also covering for United Press International at the time. Okay. And uh, I guess it was three or four years later, UPI decided, hey, we're going to do what everybody else does. We need quotes from the clubhouse. And I said, well, I'm not going to the clubhouse in the Dodgers clubhouse to get quotes for UPI. So I stopped writing for them at the time. Gotcha. Uh, so it was in this probably 67, 68, somewhere in there that this happened. Um, and it changed quite a bit when we got to the to the vet because there was a lot more interest. Bill Giles came in to open the doors for PR and promotions and everything. And so we, we, we would 
take out-of-town writers to, to road trips and spring training and the Florida, the Florida Instructional League. So we had a lot more media coverage at the time. And then obviously we got good in the early, in the mid seventies. Yeah. You, you mentioned Bill Giles and I, I want to talk about him because uh, first of all, you talk about a visionary and a guy that uh, was able to, you know, kind of see the big picture and how to uh, take this organization from here to there um, in so many different ways, in so many different departments. And I know you were very uh, close with him, are very close with him. Um, he, he's a character. So give me, give me a little bit about Bill Giles. Well, he, uh, he came up when he came in, he was the PR director in Houston and I didn't know him very much. I went on one road trip, but he was Warren Giles' son. And he had that kind of opinion that he's simply better than everybody else. And when he came to Philadelphia, he was the exact thing we needed. I didn't know. I went to Bob Carpenter one time and said, we have to change the way we operate and blah, blah, blah. And I didn't think I got anywhere. And then two weeks later, he announced that Bill Giles is coming to as a business, handle of business operations. He changed everything. I was, I thought, well, he's coming in. He's going to bring his own person in here. He didn't. He opened the doors. He made it easier. And uh, he was all pro PR all the time. He was, he, he loved the city of Philadelphia. He was pro city. He and Paul Owens are the two people that saved this franchise because I lived it. I saw it. You know, I know what it was like. And uh, we were pretty antiquated back in the 60s. We couldn't draw people. We didn't have much of a staff. Our scouts were older people. We weren't getting good ball players. Paul Owens changed all that. And Bill Giles on the other end of the business end of it. We, we went to the vet. You know, Bill had opened the Astrodome. So he went through all that experience there. Um, the night before we we're opening Veterans Stadium, I left the ballpark around two o'clock in the morning. He was wiping down the front glass doors with Windex, you know. Um, he had staff meetings every Tuesday morning. And Chris Wheeler and I sit in the back of them. There were about 11 of us in the room. And we had some crazy ideas. <laughs> Yes. You know, Melinda Kite Man and Wheels and I used to shake our heads, but uh, it, it was fun. He made it fun. He he was of the, was of the opinion that you would, we're in the entertainment business. We cannot control the wins and losses, so we need to entertain people as best we could. We had a great entertaining organist, Paul Richardson. You know, yeah. it was really uh, he brought the life the place alive, and we had a lot of crazy promotions, fun promotions, and uh, it was always interesting. Yeah, that, that's the thing about Bill. Uh, there had to be times, and I've had this conversation with you, and I've had this conversation with Chris Wheeler and, and others that were, were around at that time, but there had to be times where you're sitting in a meeting and Mr. Giles brings something to the table and you're all just like, you no, Bill, that's crazy. Can, can you remember a time? Yeah, the Kite Man, not, not <laughs> Kite Man, uh, Walinda. You know, Wheels and I didn't watch that. We didn't have the guts to watch. We he went was a tight, and, tight rope walker, right? I was waiting for, for the newspapers to call that the guy fell on the ground, was killed, yeah. something like that, you know. So we didn't watch that. But one time we're talking, we have giveaway days. And we're going to have a sweatshirt for, for kids. And Bill says, do you like the gray one or do you like the white one? We're going to take a vote. So we all voted for the gray one. Bill said, well, I'm sorry, my wife Nancy wants the white one. <laughs> Why did we have a vote then, Bill? He was just hoping you'd go with the white. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's hysterical. And the white one it was. Yes. Yeah. I wonder if anyone still has one of those. <laughs> I'm sure they do. I'm sure they do. Uh, yeah, giveaways were a big part of what, what Bill was all about. And there were yes. some crazy ones of those as well, right? Yeah, we started out for kids to get the kids, to get the moms and dads to come out. But then we spread it out. We we grew. Then we had certain things for dads, certain things for the ladies. And they were all very popular. And you know, he was just, he was an entertainer. He really was. He had a vision. Uh, he, he had a tremendous feel for the city of Philadelphia, the uh, Chamber of Commerce and pr promoting the city. You know, yeah. we started fireworks around July 4th, you know, big, big events, very big events. But he didn't want to have the fireworks right away on July 4th because that would interfere with the city. And he thought the city deserved to have their own time for that. Uh, he was he was just wonderful. He turned the whole franchise around. Yeah, it's really it's interesting. Uh, we've been lucky enough to have him here on the podcast, and again, some uh, some great stories for yeah. sure from uh, Bill Giles. Another name you mentioned was Paul Owens, and I want I wanted to talk to you about him as well. I did not know Paul Owens. Uh, I'm not sure I ever crossed paths with him, but I've read so much about him and and uh, what a great baseball man he was. Um, such an important person in this franchise. Tell us a little bit about uh, the interactions with Paul. The Pope was, a, he was a 
scout. He, he did everything for the, minor league, for the Phillies. He was a minor league player, minor league manager. Then he moved into California to scout Southern California, which is a hotbed for baseball. But in 66, 64, 65, he would go to spring training and run the minor league camp hmm. for class A players. And he realized that in 64 that we had a, a very bad minor league system. And uh, in, in early in 65 season, Bob Carpenter brought him in as a farm director and he cleaned out the scouting department, got a whole new staff of scouts. The draft started that year in 1965, you know, and uh, he's the best baseball man we've ever had in our organization without any doubt. Uh, He had the vision for Carpenter Complex because the double A team, double A players were training in one place in Florida, triple A in another place and class A in another place. So he wanted them all in one city. And we did that. He started the Florida Instructional League. Uh, our minor league system got really good. We were the best minor league system in baseball in 1969. And it, 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 it materialized. He was tough. He was really tough. Yeah. He traveled with the team because he wanted to get to know the players. He would go to the ballpark and sit in the stands for batting practice and watch the other team hit. He remembered seeing Richie Hebner. We needed the first baseman. He remembered watching him in spring and batting practice and how he worked so hard on the field, the energy he had. And we went out and got him and moved him from third base to first base. Um, he knew talent. He knew people. He was the best judge of people I've ever met, just not ball players. He knew everything about a ball player, but he didn't know the name. He couldn't know the <laughs> name. You know, he was just that, that it, but he could tell you everything. And uh, I went with him to a scout one time. He was scouting a kid in Roxborough High School, a pitcher. I forget his name, Harris, I think it was. And Paul Owens sat by the right field foul pole. And I said, well, why are you out here? He said, you sit behind home plate. There's too much chit-chat among the scouts. You're not paying attention. I want to see stuff. I want to see the third base dugout. I want to see how the kid handles adversity when he gets in the dugout. How does he handle his teammates? How the teammates handle him? I want a different angle. and I don't want to be bothered by other people. It was unique. Wow. Yeah. A different way of thinking about things. Uh, always is a good thing. Um, well, you talked about that, uh, that talent that was coming through the minor leagues at the time. And then obviously in the seventies, uh, the, the Phillies organization at the big league level starts to, uh, bring some of that talent up. Some of the, the great players that have ever played for this organization, you were right there in the middle of it. Um, you know, Steve Carlton is a guy that I would imagine could have been a PR kind of nightmare to be dealing with, but, but maybe not because he just didn't do anything. Right. Well, it was, it was. When he came in 1972, he had the phenomenal season. You know, he was unbelievable. Yeah. That winter, we ran him everywhere. He was so cooperative. We did everything. He won the Cy Young Award. We went to New York to the baseball writers' banquet there. He went up with bronchitis. In spring training of 73, he just wasn't the same. He wound up losing 20 games that year. Yeah. He was. He opened up everything. You know, his, his parents, his parents, his beliefs and all this and that. And he has got some struggles, but some of them – some of the media took advantage of their relationship with him and he decided he wasn't going to talk, which made it easy for me because yeah. the answer was policy is policy. He just wouldn't do it. And he was consistent. And I think the media respected the fact he was consistent. When an athlete is inconsistent dealing with the media, that's where the media has a problem. And it, it creates a problem for the PR person too. But he was, he was, he was in a world by himself too. The day he pitched, you didn't go near him. He was in this fog, you know, he was so focused and so different. He had his own workout, you know, it was kind of private in the back room. And, uh, but he was a good person. You laughed with Lefty. People didn't realize you could laugh with Lefty in the clubhouse, but uh, he didn't have that persona. He was so private. Mm-hmm. And then he gets elected to the hall of fame and they traditionally, traditionally take the winner to New York for a press conference the next day. And he asked me to go along with him. So I went up to New York and we were in his suite and I was kind of coaching him about how are you going to handle the media and how are you going to explain that you're talking now when you didn't talk and all this and that. And he would go off on some of his wild theories and said, lefty, we can't go there. But, you know, <laughs> so we go to the press conference the next day and he's talking. And after 25 minutes, this is my opinion, the press conference gets a little bit shaky. The same questions recircle and yep. so forth. So I thought it was time to stop it. So I said, we'll take two more questions. I'm going to stop. No, I'm enjoying this. Let's keep going. So he kept going, you know, and he becomes a Hall of Famer. But then he also goes back to his privacy thing, which is fine. He's he's, he's a great person. People don't realize that. He's a very knowledgeable person. Um, 
and he he didn't, he, he wasn't fascinated with his own records and so forth. And in '83, he was going for his um, 300th win. So I went down to talk to him, and I said, "What are you going to do after your 300th win?" He said, "I'm going for 400." I said, "Well, I know that, but what about talking to the media?" He says, "You know me. I don't want to talk to the media, but I want to talk to the fans." I said, "Well, you talk to the fans by going through the media." So I said, how about this scenario? I will take questions from the writers, the media, give them to Harry Callis, whom you like. He will interview in the post-game show, and we're answering the world. We're talking to the fans. We're starting to find the media. Well, okay. So I, uh, as it turns out, he was going to not set it at home, which was good for us because we don't have the big media to cover it. Yeah. Just be the, 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 the city. It was in St. Louis, as it turns out. So I thought, well, I better let the writers know what's going to happen. That way they can tell the sports editor if they want to send out a columnist to St. Louis or an extra writer or something like that. So I did. The next day, there's an eight-column headline in the Inquirer. Lefty to talk after his 300th win. Kenny Bush, the clubhouse guy, calls and says, Lefty wants to talk to you. <laughs> I knew exactly what it was. So I went down there and he says, uh, did you see the inquiry? I said, yeah. He says, see, they're making a bigger deal out of me talking than me pitching. We're trying to win the pennant. This is more important than any goal that I have. I don't have any personal goals. I want to win for the team. I'm not going to do that. I said, okay. So I went up upstairs and told Bill Giles. And Bill says, I'll go down and talk to him. I said, Bill, I saw the eyes of Lefty. I've seen the eyes of Lefty. Lefty's eyes was the answer is no. Yeah. That's, I don't think we need to disturb him on something like this. Let him be, have peace of mind. He won the game in St. Louis. He did a short interview on radio with Tim McCarver, who was on our broadcast team at the time, and we got something done. But how about that? He was he was consistent. Other pitch, other players aren't always consistent, you know. Oh. And and it was accepted. And it was easy, you know. And and when we got to the postseason. I didn't need him in the interview room because Tug McGraw was also the last, got the last out. Right. There you go. And, <laughs> so, and Tug was always happy to talk. Tug was always happy to talk. So it, would, it turned out great. And the, the players respect him. I mean, you had to respect him, you know. I mean, there's nobody like Lefty in our history. Nobody. No. It's going to be a long time before somebody matches what he did. Yeah. And, you know, you, you think about that 80 team and, you know, that 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 era. Um, and um, I've talked to so many of the, the guys from uh, 1980 over the course of the last couple of years. And, and they all talk about how close they were to being broken up. I mean, that yeah. that that team in 80, had they not won in 80, they would have been broken up. Um, and I know that uh, that you were privy to sitting back and, and, and seeing how close uh, some of those guys yeah. were close to leaving. You know, I was in meetings with Paul Owens in Dallas and so forth, and Paul thought he he wanted to break up the team, but he thought he wanted to give him one more chance, you know. And Dallas was the right guy. The players didn't want to hear him, nope. but he was the right guy. He drove them. You know, he whipped them into the throw. And uh, then after that season, he started moving some of the guys. Lazinski was the first one to go. You know, they sold him to the White Sox after that season. Bo was not far behind, but uh, it was a great team. That team caught the ball. I mean. They caught the ball. Yeah. You couldn't get a ball through the left side of the infield and Manny Tree at second and Gary in center. It was incredible. Yeah. And Booney behind the plate. I mean, right up, you know, straight yep. up through the middle. And yeah. Absolutely. You have to be strong up the middle. No doubt about it. Um, it, it so they, they were a group collectively that uh, didn't give you too much angst. Is that, is that a fair statement? Yeah, it was, it was the angst was from the media pressure and the exposure, you know, the constant thing. Um, yeah. When you get to the postseason, you have to have interview rooms and, and you, you take players there because you have like a thousand members of media, you can't get them in the clubhouse. But they were they were pretty good to deal with. Dallas was always good. And again, I didn't need left. I needed lefty one time. We're in Dodger Stadium. I forget it was 77, 78. He pitched a cleat game and beat the Dodgers. And Major League Baseball runs the postseason. They said, we'd like lefty in the interview room. I thought, yeah. oh my God. <laughs> I, go, I'm, I'm, I go down the ninth inning, at top of the ninth inning. I'm in the dugout in Dodger Stadium at first base, and Lefty walks off the field. And uh, so I said, Lefty, I need you. He says, why? I said, just follow me. So I grabbed him by the belt. We walked up the steps. You walk across the Dodger field, down the club, down their dugout, past their clubhouse to an interview room. And he's still with me. And we get in the interview room. His eyes got as big as a silver dollar. <laughs> he whispered answers. <laughs> Is that right? And he never 
never got on me about that, never said a word after that. You know, I, I didn't ask him anymore after that. I was very fortunate, you know, and when we won the, the world championship at the vet that night, I didn't need him. You know, you get split with the MVP. And there's another story. Yeah. Chris Wheeler is my assistant. Baseball says, we got to get Mike Schmidt, the MVP, to the interview room. Get him there right away. So I said, the wheels, you're in charge of getting Schmitty down there, and I'll stay in the clubhouse. Schmitty never got on national TV after the game. Wheels he messed still, up? Well, he never got, by the time the interview was over, they were off the air in the clubhouse. Oh, how about that? The celebration, because the, the trophy presentation that was in the clubhouse at that time. So he would bellyache to us for years that my great grand my grandmother never got to see me after I won the MVP on national TV. And you <laughs> took me to the interview room. Oh, that's <laughs> he was he was fine. He was it was a different group. Uh, Booney was solid. Boa was chirpy. You know, uh, Maddox was kind of quiet. Schmidt was kind of quiet. Ron Reed was kind of quiet. Other guys, LC and Tug were not quiet. You know, LC would. Walk in the clubhouse today, he's pitching, and lefty uh, Tug would say, LC, are you pitching today? And LC says, Yes, I'm starting today. That means I'm pitching too. Because <laughs> <laughs> LC didn't complete games. <laughs> That's tremendous. <laughs> I love that. Um, let's fast forward then, because a team that probably did give you a little angst, in fact, I know they did, yep. uh, was, uh, well, you know where I'm going, in 1993, yep. that, right. that that magical group uh, who we all uh, love and love to talk about. Um, I know they were a challenge for you, and I think I read somewhere, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, that you have said that the toughest guy to deal with was our good buddy, yes. I'm Crook. Yes, <laughs> So media darling John Crook, right? Right. He's, he's a, he's a, he made a great career as a, a member of the media. Yes. Uh, Crocker was that, that was Crocker. He was natural. It was it was a very unique team. Um, I had two. We had PR people had two things going for us. One number number one was Jim Fergosi. Number two, Darren Dalton and I became good friends, and he was the leader. That team, and I didn't travel much. Lee Tobinder. Gene Diaz, I think, were there. They did the traveling. After every game, they'd be in the in the trainer's room. And now you got an empty clubhouse. And at home, that that was me. So I'd go in the clubhouse and I'm on the Phillies. They're among them, they're on the Phillies, but I'm a different animal. You know, I'm in their territory right now. They don't want to see me in their trainer's room because they're they're going over the game. They're getting on guys for not busting or not making the right player, bring the wrong pitch, or whatever the case may be. And that was very important. That was part of that success of that team. But Darren Dalton had to get ice on his knees every game. So he would say, okay, Baron, give me 10 minutes and I'll be out. My eyes come up. Mickey, go out and help Baron. Go out and help Lee. Go out and help Chief, uh, you know, so forth. So we, we made it. Uh, we got to the World Series. And uh, we beat well, we beat the Braves. Where we, we were going to Atlanta and the headline in the in the paper was get the kids and women off the street. The Phillies are coming to town, you know, the wild <laughs> bunch. And we beat them down there. And they were good. They were good in the postseason, cooperating with everything. But we get to the World Series and um, I'm behind our dugout and I hear this roar. I don't know what's going on. Carter hit the home run. Yeah. So now we're coming off the field. Major League Baseball's rules are the clubhouse can be closed for 10 minutes after a World Series game, except the clinching game, the clubhouse is opened immediately. Mm. There was no way in the world I was going to open the clubhouse immediately. We couldn't. I mean, these guys just lost the World Series. And so I dilly-dallied, and I don't know, maybe it's 10, 15 minutes I finally opened the clubhouse. There was Mitch at his locker, standing up, facing the music, answering the same question, same question, wave after wave. And I was about to go get him when Terry Mulholland got the hair behind me and got him out of there. Mitch stood up like a man, and I respect him for him. I think the fans did, too. I mean, they weren't that happy with at the time, but he was a man. And i never forget when we had the alumni weekend, when he came back the first time, he was a little, little concerned about what kind of reception he was going to get. He got a great reception. It was really neat. Yeah, you know, person. that's the beauty of this city, I think. I mean, we live and die um, with our sports teams. We live and die with our athletes. Yeah. But, uh, you know, we under, we also understand the game so well that 
we know guys are going to give up game-winning home runs, and as long as they face the music, as you said, um, <clears throat> we're okay with that. You know, yeah. Alex Bohm went through that this year. Exactly right. He yeah, really did. Exactly right. So, um, so let me get back to the Crocker just because I like to, to tease him because he's constantly on me. But uh, <laughs> why did he? You know, how did he make your life so difficult? I mean, was he just well, he just didn't know, want to do anything? You know, um, and I want to. I don't want to pick on Crocker because he's oh, no, let's a friend, pick on. I think, uh, <laughs> but he, you know, I, I would talk to the players in spring training about signing autographs. Baron ain't signing because of the same people out there. They're not fans; they're collectors. I'm not signing for collectors, you know. Or ALS, he said. I'll, you know, I, I don't want to do ALS. And, and I understood the players. Some felt that the and uh, photo day where they went on the field, they felt like they were kind of in a zoo or on display or something. That was odd, you know, and. Uh, I met one, we had one photo day and, and I'm in, and then there were no cell phones. So the, I'm on the field getting the players out there and there's no lefty. So the phone when the dugout rings, it's Bill Giles from up in his box in the press box. Said, Where's lefty? I said, I don't know. What do you mean? You don't know. So I go in the club. I can't find lefty to this day. He won't tell me where he hid, but I know he hid someplace, but I can never find him. <laughs> 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 yeah photo day is uh can be a challenge for for yeah. some of the players yeah. for sure yeah well you know and, and it was just that was crook i mean he was he was a he was a great personality it yeah. really is and uh, he does an awesome job as a broadcaster he really does i thought he was great on espn yeah. i understand that grind but this is this is good he's with us and he's absolutely He's a it's it's great that he's with us and, and he is such a personality. And, you know, it's funny because he really enjoys those kinds of uh, events now, getting up and, and talking yeah. to the fans and stuff. Yeah. He, he he does. He, he he looks forward to those kinds of things now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's different when you're not playing 162 yes. games and yeah. feeling like your body's beat up and um, that kind of thing. But, uh, yeah, we're lucky to have him for sure. All right. I, I have a couple more things I want to get to before I let you go. But uh, – Again, I read uh, a little snippet uh, back when the Philly fanatic was uh, starting to come into uh, Bill Giles' mind as a yeah. as a as a mascot. Um, you thought maybe not the best idea, right? Am I am I right about that? Yes, I I was very. I'm a traditionalist. I don't like I don't like batting gloves. I don't like walk up music. <laughs> I don't like pitch counts. I don't like launch angles. Uh, and you know I. Uh, we didn't know what we were going to have, you yeah. know, we, we didn't really, as I recall, publicize it. All of a sudden in 1978 and April 23rd or whatever it was, he comes out of the right field corner, <laughs> but he would come out and he'd be on his motor vehicle or doing stuff. And now the umpire is waiting to start the game, you know, get off the field. Damn it. You know, I was, and, but what a thing, what a great thing. It's the best thing we ever had. Best thing yeah. we ever did. It's, it's, like, I, I can totally understand that because i think i'd have been like you like why do we need something like that yeah um but but yet yeah i mean this was this was 1978 when we were good it wasn't like we're 72 73 when we were not very good you know we needed something but denny lehman was on a road trip in the my spirit in my department and he went to san diego and saw the chicken and he came back and he had a staff meeting he says bill i think we need a mascot i just saw the chicken this is a great thing and it took off from there and and Bill, as, as he has said many times, he was con- not consoled on it, but he he was con- concerned about telling Rudy Carpenter we had to spend whatever it was twenty five thousand dollars for a costume for a mascot, you know, and he didn't take he didn't take the by the um, copyright at the time and then paid for it later, you know. And <laughs> it's it's the greatest thing ever. It is. I mean, yeah. you know, I live in this com- community here where we continue in care and. We've had the fanatic out here maybe two or three times and everybody relates to him, no matter who it is, you know, it's really incredible. Well, we, we've been lucky with the uh, best friends of the fanatic over the years, Dave Raymond, the brilliant Dave yep. Raymond, the brilliant Tom Burgoyne and, and the rest of the guys that, uh, that uh, hang out with the fanatic on a nightly basis. So um, they really special, a special kind of thing for yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, all right. Before I let you go, I have to ask you um, as part of being uh, in the public relations, you're dealing with the writers, you're dealing with local TV and radio, but you're dealing with the Phillies broadcasters as well. And uh, <clears throat> we were, um, I'm lucky enough to to be one of those guys, um, <clears throat> but we've had so many great ones in our history. And of course, Harry and uh, Whitey and Wills, those were the guys that I grew up listening to. Um, and uh, your connection to them is is you know, 100% complete. Tell me a little bit about uh, those guys and, and what they meant to this organization. 
there was there was no doubt about it. I mean, you know, I was a fan growing up, and I listened to buy some and and Claude Herring and Gene Kelly, and now I'm working for them, so I know what it was like. You know, they're part of millions of people's lives for 180, 162 days, games, 180 days, days, I guess it is. Yeah. And I know the impact. I hear it from my residents here, you know, uh, they want to know, where is Cruck? Why isn't Cruck on the air? What happened to Murph? And why is, where's wheels nowadays? You know, yeah. uh, we were very fortunate. I mean, Bill Giles, you know, he gets a lot of credit. He brought yeah. Harry here. Yeah. And it was a very unpopular move because he replaced Bill Campbell, who's an icon in Philadelphia. You know, he's, he did everything in Philadelphia broadcasting wise, a good friend too. And Harry was just a young guy from, from Houston. And what a, what an impact he had. Um, he was, you know, I, when I, at the vet, we'd all parked near the same place near their office entrance. And after every game, when I would leave, he would be out there signing autographs for the fans. And it was endless, you know, he went on the caravans and he was just so beloved. And Richie Ashburn, he were just so entertaining, you know. Um, I guess you've heard my my famous story, but Richie Ashburn, my wife Julie was in a car accident in September of Labor Day of 96. And a pickup truck turned in and hit her left front fender. She wasn't hurt, she didn't go to the hospital. So that night I'm in the press club having dinner with Richie Ashburn. I mentioned it about Julie. So during the game, I go in the office and he's on the air and he says, we want to send our best along to Ruley Carpenter. What happened to Ruley? He was in a car accident today. And he proceeded to describe the same thing. Pickup <laughs> truck, left front fender, hurt his shoulder, but he's okay. Someone out the booth and said, why did where'd you hear that thing? Well, somebody told me that at dinner tonight. He said it was me. It was Julie, not Ruley. <laughs> I've never heard that story. And he says, oh. you need to speak more clearly. <laughs> it wasn't my fault. It was his, I mean, it wasn't his fault. It was my fault. But more clearly. Oh my gosh. He, he was, he was, but he was, he, he was so entertaining. I mean, it was just the greatest. They were the best, best there were. There were, I don't know. Yeah. We've got good grooves. We got a good groove now too, you know, and you know, the broadcasters were, they were employees of the Phillies. They were our friends. Writers were friends, but they weren't employees, you know, and, but you live with them. So how do you treat them? Do you tell them things that they shouldn't know, but they might come in handy in the air so that they don't criticize a move the manager's made because a certain guy's hurt or something? And and the other thing, I remember Jeff Halleckman and, and um, the fellow before him, we need to tell them when the trade's made during the game so that they know about it, you know, right. so, they're, they should be number one in what we do. And I think the current crew of Chris and, and Kenny and Jim and uh, Greg do a great job yeah. keeping the writers informed. You know, uh, it's yeah, it's a fine balance for sure. Uh, it, is. it is. It's a, it's it's, a difficult part of the job. But so many people listen and watch anymore. It's just incredible. Yeah. We're very lucky in that regard. All right. Final thing. Wheels. I got to I, I got I, I to ask it because because Chris Wheeler, um, who is one of one of the, my favorite people on this planet um, and uh, and started as your assistant, as you pointed out right. earlier, uh, and then obviously made that transition into broadcasting. Did you always see that in wheels that uh, I, I know we always wanted to, to be on that yeah. side of things? Did you see well, that? You know, I was I got the clearance from Bill Giles. I had an assistant. It was 72. I think it was 70. 70, maybe 71. And um, I was I was from the print world, but there was an electronic world too. And Andy Musser was a good friend of mine. We're, we're both from Central Pennsylvania and so forth. So I mentioned to Andy one night, I'm I'm looking for an assistant. I got the person exact right person for you, Chris Wheeler. He's working at CAU Radio at the time. Had been with other radio stations in Chicago, and New York. So we had lunch at the Spectrum in the whatever that lunch room used to be over there. The ovations, was ovations, it? yeah. yeah. We had lunch there and I offered him a job. He took a pay cut and he came on as my assistant. And back then I was writing a weekly column called the Baron's Corner and he would do a Philly phone to report after every game. And so he became the liaison with the electronic media because he understood their needs and, and so forth. They, he, under, he knew the Melsters and, and those kind of people. Right. And uh, I dealt with the print media. We, we were a great combination. And uh, then he was in Montreal in 76. We clinched the pennant up there. 
and Richie was on the radio for the for the second game. We clinched the penalty after the first game, and Wheels walks in the booth and something to the effect, "Wheels, you always want to be a broadcaster. Take over." And Richie Take got over. left, <laughs> so he did, and he became a a traveling. And then he had to travel, which relieved me a little bit. In '76, we were getting the All Star game, so I couldn't travel because of all the preparation for an All Star game. So he was traveling all the time, filling two shoes, two jobs. And then I guess it was 82 or 83, we recognized that this wasn't fair to him, you know. Um, so he became our director of a speakers bureau or something like that in community relations. Yeah. And I brought in a, two assistants to, re, to replace him. And uh, he's, he's been a very good friend. Uh, um, we were in spring training in 72. And the PA announcer didn't show up as a friend of Bob Carpenter's who came down every year to do the games. And I guess he had too much something to drink one night, didn't show up the next day. <laughs> so I told John Quinn, the general manager, we don't have a PS, well, figure it out. So I went to Wheels. Did you ever do a pre-announcer? Sure, I did. So he said, I'll do it. So he did it. He never did it, but he wasn't going to tell me he never of course. did it. He's still doing it. Yeah. yeah. He's still doing it. I know. He's he's the best. He really is. Yeah. Um. That's great stuff. Uh, I know Larry that uh, you, you've written a couple of books. Uh, yeah. your your mind is uh literally the, the the history and encyclopedia of the Philadelphia Phillies. Um, which is which is so you know interesting and and exciting. Tell folks um about quickly about your books and 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 where they can find them because uh, I'm sure folks are interested in that. Well, there 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 was one. First one was two thousand. 10, I think it was called Inside These Walls. It was done by a publisher out of Chicago. I can't remember the name right now. And then the second one was four years later. Uh, stories about the clubhouse and the history. My first publication really became 1979 when Alan Lewis and I co-published This State in Philly's History. Mm -hmm. I got addicted to that. And I ever since then, my staff and I kept track of all these events over the years. And now it's been passed on to Christine Nagley in the publications department. And that's that's my Twitter to let people know about what goes on in our history. Yeah. And I think it's good fodder for the broadcasters, you know, and I I know that it's part of their press notes sometimes. Yeah. Uh, it's part of the, the promos they read sometimes. And yeah. that's unique to baseball. I don't think you can do that for football. What can you write about a tackle in 1975? No, you're you're so right about yeah. that. Yeah. And the Twitter responses I get are amazing. It really is because people remember <clears throat> my Twitter followers are older people, obviously, you know, which is part of my life, I guess. So it's it's been my life. It's my passion. It's my therapy. So I can't get rid of it. I got I got Philly's red blood in my system. I mean, the sort of things he had blue blood, but it wasn't blue. It was red <laughs> like mine. I know you do. Uh, and, and we are all better for it, uh, Larry, because uh, uh, the, the stuff that uh, that you continue to show us and, and teach us is is just it's awesome. And if you're a okay. Phillies fan and and you're not following Larry on Twitter, get on that because it is a terrific follow. Um, but uh, but also, you know, grab those books, because, again, we, we could do this for hours and tell stories. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but we don't have that time. But certainly there's some great stories in there as well. Um, Larry, thank you so much for your well, time. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's great to see you, um, and it's great to talk to you as always. And okay. I would look forward to seeing you down at the ballpark uh, one of these days, right? I'm going to try to get there. My mobilities are an issue to get around, so I it's gone uncomfortable getting there. And, but I'm going to try to get there sometime next month in August. And I won't be there for alumni weekend. I don't think there's too many people there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a that's a crazy one, and that would be crazy for you, I'm sure. Yes, yeah. But uh, well, good. We hope we Thank hope, you. hope we get you out there, and we'll uh, we'll see you soon. Larry, thank Shea, you very Larry, much. Joining us here on Glove Stories with Murph. Uh, when we come back, Larry Boa and Charlie Manuel will jump on the podcast. So stay with us right here on Glove Stories with Murph. The all-new Bet Parks Casino and Sportsbook app is here for both Pennsylvania and New Jersey. Get in on all the action, whether it's baseball, the basketball and hockey playoffs, golf, all your favorite sports. Download the all-new Bet Parks Casino and Sportsbook app and make your first bet risk-free up to $750. Bet more than the score. Bet on individual player performances for hits, home runs, and strikeouts. Bet innings, first team to score, and more. Bet Parks is the only sportsbook and casino app that I recommend. 
the Bet Parks Casino and Sportsbook app, where odds, bets, slots, and games all come together in perfect harmony right in your pocket. Sportsbook and all your favorite casino games for real money, all in one amazing app. Live in-game betting lets you bet while you watch the game. Download right now in the App Store, Google Play Store, or at BetParks.com and use my promo code MURF. BetParks is also an official proud betting operator of the PGA Tour. The all-new BetParks Casino and Sportsbook app. You must be 21 and in Pennsylvania or New Jersey. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Welcome to This Week in Philly Baseball History, presented by Shive Vintage Sports. This week in 1954, the final Philadelphia City Series game was held at Connie Mack Stadium. Richie Ashburn scored two runs for the NL club in a 3-2 victory. The yearly exhibition dates back to 1883. Celebrate more Philly sports history with clothing from Shab Vintage Sports, where there's a story in every stitch. Visit them at 13th and Walnut Streets or at shabsports.com. Phillies Nation is your source for breaking news, original analysis, trade insights, and more. Read today's articles at philliesnation.com. And welcome back to Glove Stories as we welcome in Larry Boa and Charlie Manuel as we do every week to talk about, well, the big picture in baseball and some things that are going on. I like to throw out a topic and let these guys uh, talk about it, tell some stories that uh, will support their case. And guys, we're going to start with baseball's unwritten rules because there has been a lot of conversation about that. Uh, those rules that, uh, well, I guess were put in place mostly for sportsmanship at, at one point uh, early in the game, but I'd like to get your thoughts uh, on that. So Charlie, why don't we start with you? Uh, are there any of those unwritten rules that to you are sacred and should always be in place? Murph, I, uh, I've been thinking about this. I, uh, you know, like I, what I get down to, I, uh, used to be a big rule is if you're five runs ahead, you don't, you don't steal bases. You don't, you don't try to run the score up on the other team, things like that. I don't know if I ever agreed with that or not, but it's definitely changed now. And, uh, uh, you know, like I like the fact that you can, uh, you know, like that you can score whenever you want to. Now I'm kind of a wide open guy, really. And I, I, I look at it. If, if we get beat by 10 runs a night or 15 or something like that, it's our own fault. And, you know, like, and, uh, you know, like we got to really uh, stay focused on the game, you know, like can play the game the right way. And then there's another one called a head hunter. Uh, yep. A good, a, a good example of that would be, you know, like umpires used to, uh, I think I think Bo can chime up, chime in on this. The umpires used to let if a if a, a pitcher uh, dusted a hitter or not or hit him or something like that, the umpire just didn't go out there and warn him. You know, like he would wait and actually let uh, the other team would get kind of a chance to retaliate somewhere in the game. And and I think it, uh, you know, like uh, a good example of that would be we played in Cleveland one uh, one day and. I was with the twins and uh, Tony Oliva got hit right in the head by Sal McDowell. Okay. And, and the ball kind of stuck in the helmet. And then Boswell <laughs> walks Boswell walks right out there. Bo, I've told you the story before. <laughs> Boswell just walks right out there, you know, like and 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 uh when McDowell comes up, you know, he 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 throws right at him and McDowell gets up, gets way back in the batter's box, and he throws at him again. And then, you know, and he threw at him like three times in a row, and the umpire finally warned him. Well, you know, like he got back up on the mountain, and he kind of just took three or three or four steps toward uh, McDowell, and McDowell was kind of running, and he hit him right in the neck. <laughs> and, uh, you know, like, and that comes in, you know, like I think about that. And and later on, you know, like, uh, I think they definitely changed the rule, and uh, it was their, uh, uh, if, if they thought, that you automatically threw at a guy or something like that, they would warn you, and you and uh, it was hard for the other team to retaliate. Uh, right. You know, like th those are some of the rules I think of. Um, uh, those, those are two good ones, and and, yeah. and I wonder, Bo. I mean, do, do you agree that uh, I, you know? Obviously, no one wants to get anybody hurt, but there is a place for policing in the game, isn't there? Yeah. There's no question about that, and and you know, like you said, no one wants anybody to get hit in the head. Right. But, you know, back in the day when, when both Charlie and I played, it was the aim of the guy, throw it a little bit behind him in his ribs. And, you know, that, that'll get the message across. Yeah. You know, uh, both those that Charlie said were outstanding. Uh, the one that sort of sticks out in my mind, and it happened to two of the guys that we both know, 
Kurt Schilling, I think, had a no-hitter in San Diego. And Ben Davis. The score was one to nothing or two to nothing. He lays down a bunt, and everyone got upset at that. And, and the bottom line is Ben's trying to get on base for someone maybe to hit a home run. Now, I get it if the score's nine to nothing. Right. But it was either one to nothing or two to nothing. It was one nothing. I, this, I think it was one nothing. Yeah, and I disagree with that completely. I mean, if a guy can't lay down a bunt in a one-run game, that's ridiculous. Uh, and, and to try to upset the pitcher's rhythm a little bit. And getting back to what Charlie said about uh, drilling guys, this stands out in my mind. Doc Ellis, who pitched for Pittsburgh, and they were playing the Big Red Machine. At that time, the Big Big Red Machine did a whole lot of damage. <laughs> yeah. So the night before, Doc was charting. His, he was supposed to pitch the next day, and uh, the Reds were just killing the Pirates. I mean, it was like 8, 9, 10, nothing. And they said, Doc said, that that stuff's not happening tomorrow night. And somebody says, why not? And he says, you'll see. And Murph, this is unbelievable. He hit the first three batters. <laughs> finally got He finally got kicked out after the third hitter. But usually after you hit two guys in a row, now one guy you could get kicked out. Yeah, right. Back then, it took three hitters, and he drilled all three of them. He <laughs> says that's not because they, they were celebrating when they hit home runs, doing fist bumps and all that stuff. And Doc didn't like it, and he hits three guys in a row. But those things – are non-existent no. now. That wouldn't happen. Umpires. In fact, I've seen umpires throw out a guy hitting him with a breaking ball. I know. Now who's, yeah. who's gonna? If you're gonna hit somebody, you're gonna make it. You know, stick, and it's yeah. gonna be a fastball about 95, 96. <laughs> yeah. so. Hey, Charlie. Let me ask you. When you were managing, uh, so so you you said the unwritten rule of not being able to score when you're up five runs. It, it was there ever a situation where you followed the unwritten rule, and then a team comes back on you, and next thing you know, you're in a dogfight. Without a doubt, I, uh, hey, uh, you can definitely lose games that way. Yeah. I mean, five runs. But nowadays, too, like I always look look at, especially nowadays with the uh, where you play in the smaller ballparks and things like that. Definitely, that can happen to you. Yeah. I, uh, Murph is like uh, uh, things like uh, like when uh, you look at uh, scoring five runs, and we bought Davy Lopes over to our ballpark, and I, you know, like because he definitely was a tremendous base uh, runner as far uh, a coach that taught our guys how to steal bases and things like that and brought a new dimension to our team because we stressed it a lot. Right. And, uh, you know, like we would run sometimes actually when, you know, like he told me when I hired him, he goes, he goes, Charlie's not going to like me sometimes. He said, because I'm going to be aggressive and, you know, like I'm going to show him we're going to run and we might be five runs up and, and, uh, and we go to run. And I kind of looked after I thought about those things, I thought of our ballpark. And, uh, you know, I, I thought to myself, well, well, you know, like five runs, I looked at that as like having a two or three run lead. So therefore, yeah, you, yeah, you know, like we're going to run. I mean, I mean, yeah. and also Tom Kelly made a statement to me one day. He says, he says, you've got a better team than I got. And he says, when we're, uh, when you're uh, beating us by five runs, you know, like we're going to run. And I told him, I said, you go right ahead. If you can beat me 20 to nothing, that's okay. Cause that's what I'm going to beat you. So that kind of opened the door for me. You know, like, I'm going to tell you something. Not only did we play behind the runner a couple of times, but Bo, we pitched out one time and got it. You know, like, and, and you're like, and, and I think we were beating them like by eight runs or something. So, you know, like it goes, it, it's, it's a kind of a change in the games, of course, and how it goes. Flipping the bat was one thing you definitely did not do. Right. No, no. Definitely didn't flip the bat. And you didn't stand there and, you know, like, and look at the uh, R when you run around the bases, you didn't holler at the pitcher or, or, <laughs> or actually make, you know, make, uh, you know, like big, you know, like a agenda jump or something like that and <laughs> say, look at me, look at me. Uh, those are things that would definitely, baseball kind of uh, definitely took care of those things. Bo can tell you some things about that too. Oh, I, yeah. I can imagine. Go ahead, Bo. We, you, we had a, uh, the, talking about stealing and everything. The 23-22 game at Wrigley Field. I mean, it was a hurricane blowing out. Yeah. And we had like a seven or eight run lead, and Danny Ozark was our manager. And he shut the running game down early. And, you know, he'd give you the hold and everything. And uh, before you know it, it's 15-14, to 14, it's 16-15. to 15. We end up winning 23-22. But Charlie made a good point. Small ballparks, but let's disregard the small ballparks. When we played, there was Wrigley Field and Coors Field. Now, those two ballparks, when you got a six or seven run lead, it's like, three to two or three to one. Right. So I, I disagree with when they say, oh, you can't steal. You know the way to stop that? Don't let anybody get on if you don't want them to steal. You know, people say don't swing three and all when you're up. You know, to me, 
that used to be a big time unwritten rule, but now yeah. that's passe now. I mean, I, last year, I think it was, or last year, two years ago, Tatis swung three and oh in Texas, hit a grand slam. They were up by eight or nine runs yeah. Yeah. and everybody made a big deal out of that. So there are some unwritten rules that still exist, but they're not enforced as much. Believe me. No, they're really not. It sounds to me like you guys are both okay with the idea that most of the unwritten rules probably can go away, but there is still that place for sportsmanship. There, there's always a place to, to say, you know, with common sense that says, all right, we don't have to beat these guys into the ground. And as long as you're right. kind of following that rule, then maybe everything will be all right. 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 I, I, you know what, you know what, Murph, I think the biggest thing there is we've both been on the other end of that where yeah. our teams are getting killed right. and you don't like somebody to rub your nose in it. So <laughs> I think there's a fine line there because I, I've been on the team where, I've beaten the other team big time, and I know Charlie has with that team he had. And they also been on the other side where we're getting our rear ends kicked. <laughs> you don't like to see people rub your no. rub your nose into the dirt. So it, there's a mutual respect there that usually that did exist, and I don't know how it exists now. Mm-hmm. Murph, I think uh, I think in today's game, I think that you uh, hitters, you know, like when they uh, now when they you know, you know like when they. Uh, celebrate and they jump up and down yeah. and things like that. And they hit home runs and they holler at the pitcher or the pitcher hollers back at them and things like that. I think it, uh, actually, uh, what I see as when in a real good hitter, there's always some mean, tough pitchers <laughs> and there's always pitchers that's going to hit you. I mean, right. not on purpose too. And, yeah. and, you know, like, and I definitely think that you have to watch for them and you've got to, uh, you know, like, uh, understand, you know, like that they do get, still get mad and things like that. And, and, uh, it's still kind of, uh, I think that, that is still in the game. I think that's kind of a law of the land thing, you know, like, you know, like if you, uh, show me up, I'm going to, some pitchers still look at that way because yeah. they're tough and holiday was that way. Yeah, you know, Bo, yeah. Hey, Bo can tell you about holiday hitting Tommy again. Because <laughs> that's a good story. Yeah. <laughs> you, want, you want to finish up with that one, Bo? Do you remember that? Yeah, it was, it was spring training. And uh, we had just gotten Tommy. And, uh, you know, as, an, as a manager getting a, a superstar like Tommy, yeah. I, I'd like to stick up for my players. And it was, like I said, a spring training game. And, and Doc drilled him and hit him really good. Mm. And Tommy, halfway to first, he started leaning over and he was hurt. And I went out and I said, you're all right. And he goes, yeah. He says, Bo, that was on purpose. I said, Jim, spring training. He says, Bo, I'm telling you, that was on purpose. He says, <laughs> wow. check, check my numbers against him. So anyway, to make a long story short, I waited. Uh, Levy was the catcher. And uh, he said, who do we want to get the first hitter? I said, no, no, let's because this is when there was no DA. Let Holiday hit. So Holiday <laughs> hit. And we hit him and we had a brawl in spring training. I love and it. <laughs> I had never seen Halliday till that day. He, I was coaching with the Phillies and he came in as a guest instructor and I went over and shook his head. He goes, I know who you are, <laughs> but, you know, and, and Tommy was right. I checked the numbers. He killed doc. Well, how about and that? I don't know to this day if it was on purpose, but Jim, gentleman, Jim, you, you he, I think he knew it was on purpose. Yeah. So I took his word for it. And that's how that sort of ended up. Oh, my God. What a great story. Great story. And on that note, we will put an end to the unwritten baseball rules. Uh, yeah, you know what? At the end of the day, you can do what you want out there, but just watch your back because somebody might be coming for you. Uh, exactly. They have to. All right, Charlie, Larry, thanks so much. We'll see you next week. Okay. Welcome to This Week in Philly Baseball History, presented by Shive Vintage Sports. This week in 1954, The final Philadelphia City Series game was held at Connie Mack Stadium. Richie Ashburn scored two runs for the NL club in a 3-2 victory. The yearly exhibition dates back to 1883. Celebrate more Philly sports history with clothing from Shibe Vintage Sports, where there's a story in every stitch. Visit them at 13th and Walnut Streets or at ShibeSports.com. The all-new Bet Parks Casino and Sportsbook app is here for both Pennsylvania and New Jersey. Get in on all the action, whether it's baseball, the basketball and hockey playoffs, golf, all your favorite sports. Download the all-new Bet Parks Casino and Sportsbook app and make your first bet risk-free up to $750. Bet more than the score. Bet on individual player performances for hits, home runs, and strikeouts. Bet innings, first team to score, and more. 
Bet Parks is the only sportsbook and casino app that I recommend. The Bet Parks Casino and Sportsbook app, where odds, bets, slots, and games all come together in perfect harmony right in your pocket. Sportsbook and all your favorite casino games for real money, all in one amazing app. Live in-game betting lets you bet while you watch the game. Download right now in the App Store, Google Play Store, or at BetParks.com and use my promo code MURF. BetParks is also an official proud betting operator of the PGA Tour. The all-new BetParks Casino and Sportsbook app. You must be 21 and in Pennsylvania or New Jersey. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Glove Stories with Murph is sponsored by the Bet Parks Casino and Sportsbook app, along with Shine Vintage Sports and Phillies Nation, and is a presentation of SBC Media Partners. The engineer for Glove Stories is Chad Evans. Cindy Webster is our marketing and guest relations director, and our executive producer is Roger Haddon. Whether you are watching us on YouTube or downloading the podcast from one of the major podcast providers like Apple, Google, or Spotify, make sure to hit like and subscribe so that we can let you know when a new episode of Glove Stories is available. We'll release new episodes weekly throughout the 2022 Major League Baseball season.